0: The wonderful story of love. We've all been the recipients of, in fact, thoughts along that line, haven't we? To appreciate not only the physical nature of the things about us that testify to the goodness and the greatness. Also, we are surrounded, of course, by the spiritual blessings that we appreciate, too, from the great hand of God as well. Tonight, as we come somewhat near the end of the book of Job... There are only 42 chapters in the book, and we have studied through the first 40 of them. Or really, I should say the first 39 of them. And we come tonight to chapter the next two chapters in that group, chapters 40 and 41. Our study on the Sunday evening lessons was interrupted only by a very positive statement last Sunday evening with Brother Clancy Etienne joining us. And what a powerful and wonderful lesson he shared with us. We're thankful that He came our way and hopeful He'll come back our way again very, very soon. Tonight, as we continue our study in the book of Job, I would hope that some of these remarks, though initial they might be, will also remind us at least briefly about the places that we have visited and the location that we've come tonight. We notice in the first two chapters of the book, the introduction as to why Job was in the condition that he was. Then in chapter 3, He made note of the sadness and grief and sorrow of it, and then beginning in chapter 4 and continuing all the way through chapter number 37, His friends came to Him, they spoke with Him, they often accused Him, and He would respond and reply in almost all instances. But in chapter number 38, God chose to speak. And as the God of heaven addressed the matters of which they had been discussing, He chose to address the whole issue in terms of questions. And one by one, God fired questions at Job, questions that he was unable to answer, questions that in fact touched upon the integrity and character of the physical world about us, how the earth was made, how the characteristics of it are maintained, how the thrust and nature of it is propagated forth. Job was as helpless and as clueless as in many cases we would be. We notice tonight, In chapter number 39 and 40, we shall also find some continuing discussions along that line. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to notice the very last word on that slide is the word continuation, for we aren't finished with God's remarks. Let's continue that discussion for the next few moments this evening. I've entitled this particular slide, I think it jumped one, I'm sorry... I simply entitled it The Human Status. The first few verses in Job chapter 40 are verses that are very humbling, not only for the case of what Job experienced, but also for our case as well. I would like to invite us to read the first few verses of the 40th chapter of Job. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And immediately we notice that the God of heaven, continuing His address to Job, says, Job, he that contendeth with the Almighty, he that has the nerve to attempt to instruct, to reprove, to give God direction, let him take careful note that he which argues with God, let him answer it. Any person who would attempt to answer or to argue or to instruct or correct God, is certainly in a very serious situation. And here, that's exactly the mindset that was Job's mindset. For that reason, verse 3 goes on to give us what Job's reply was. Then Job answered the Lord and said, "'Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further.'" Job, it would seem, by virtue of all these questions that God had asked him to this point, he now understood how little he was in comparison to God, how inferior he was in comparison to the majesty and grandeur in in infinity that is God. Did you notice with me that as a part of that discussion, Job said, I am vile. The Hebrew word seems to suggest of, of little account or of small nature or stature. Later in verse number 4, it says, I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Job seemed to realize that to this point he'd already said too much. He had already allowed things to emanate from his lips that ought not to have been directed or spoken with respect to God. For that reason, in verse 5, he says, Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further." Job there stated, I've said enough. And sometimes you and I realize that when things have been spoken by us, sometimes rather than try and to work our way out, we only dig the hole deeper. It's better at that point to remain silent. It's better at that point to simply say I have erred in my speech and to attempt to, in fact, to do that which is better. For all those reasons, we notice on this slide, beginning in verse number 6, God is not finished. Even though Job realized the need for humility and even though he acknowledged the fact that he had not spoken the thing that was best and right. Verse 6 says, "...then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, "'Gird up now thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me.'" God in essence says, "'Job, I'm not finished.'" There are more questions yet to come. There are more issues yet to be announced. and There are more matters that I wish for you to consider so that you will even have a more heightened understanding and a heightened appreciation of me. In fact, beginning in verse number 8, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like Him? Deck thyself. Now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty, cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold, every one that is proud, and abase him. Look now, every one that is proud, and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. In light of those verses, you might have noted with me that in them, we find, interestingly, that God says that when you or I question him, When we reach the point when we begin to have serious questions about the nature of who He is and what He has done, we are in essence disannulling His judgment. That word disannull means to cast aside or to set aside. It furthermore means, of course, not only to have a disrespect for, but it also has behind it the very thought of elevating oneself on an equal footing with God. That kind of thinking certainly challenged Job, and it still challenges us today, doesn't it? Because of all of that, beginning in verse number 15 of Job chapter 40, two of the last matters that God chooses to mention in His discussion with Job are these. First of all, in verses 15 and following, He mentions a creature, an animal named a behemoth. And He does so with a very special thought in mind. In essence, as you give thought to a behemoth, God to Job says, Job, do you see that animal? Could you have made it? Did you make it? Does it obey your commands? Does it respond to you? Do you sustain and uphold it? I do. Job, perhaps you should think twice and think very seriously. If you're unable to command that animal and to force it to obey you, then what right do you think you have to elevate yourself to a point in which... You think you could have done my job for me. And then all throughout chapter 41, he makes mention of a leviathan, yet another animal. And this time yet again, the thought is the same. In fact, I would invite you to look carefully with me at just a couple of verses before we look more carefully in just a moment at the discussion of them. In chapter 41, verses 32 through 34, the last three verses of the chapter, He maketh a path to shine after him, one would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not like his, who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things, he is a king over all the children of pride. God in essence says, Job, you see that Leviathan there? That animal, that creature is such that no man is able to tame him. No man is able to capture Him. No man has been able to, in fact, command or give Him instruction. He is absolutely impenetrable to the weapons and forces of humanity. I made that animal, Job. Could you have done it? As you give thought to these animals, the nature of these ancient elements, they bring us to a series of lessons that I hope that we can consider for the remainder of the lesson tonight. As we do that, the first part of it takes us back to those opening verses in chapter 40. As we give thought again to this place that Job occupied and some of these thinkings that were his, may we never forget that in comparison to God, man is so weak. He is so inferior. He is such that he is so far less than God in understanding. In fact, wasn't it true that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 made this interesting comparison? The weakness of God is stronger than man; The foolishness of God is wiser than man. And yet the human family on so many occasions thinks that it is at least on an equal par with God. And of course such isn't true. And those who are wise and those who are even modest students of the Scriptures understand the fact that God's understanding is infinite, to quote Psalm 147, verse number 5. The thought that His power and His marvelous greatness is such that even the world about us is still a testimony to what He could do. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are, do appear were not made of things, in fact, which existed. Our God was able to speak things into existence. Our God is able not only to speak them into existence, but to uphold them by the word of His power and to maintain the orchestration and the harmony of His universe in a complete and total way. That today certainly should challenge us, shouldn't it? To realize just how great, really, that He is. Science often esteems itself. A scientist may have his petri dish and may in fact do any number of things with the cells in a petri dish. But a petri dish is so minor in comparison to all the things that are existing about us. Some of the thoughts I've listed there on that slide point us then, if that be the case. We then should appreciate too that questioning God is not the order of the day. In Genesis 18.25, this rhetorical question is asked, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It should be our considered understanding that He always will do what's right. We may not understand it, but yet we are not on God's level. We'll understand it all someday. If not then, when we get to that grand place called heaven, we may not have all the answers now. In fact, that's what walking by faith is all about. We answer the things that we can, but on those things we don't. We continue to trust. We continue to have confidence and faith and assurance that the one in whose plans we put our trust will safeguard and keep it all the while we're on this place. You'll notice another passage found also listed there. In Mark 7 verse 37, "...even while the Savior was here upon earth, it was said of Him that He doeth all things well." He didn't mess up or slip up or make mistakes with regard to anything. He does all things well. Surely, if He does all things well, we can have the greatest of confidence, not only in this physical realm, but even in spiritual, when it comes to matters like hell and heaven, that He has again done everything in accordance to His will, and that we as dutiful servants must trust Him always. In Proverbs 3, verses 3 through 5, we are admonished on that occasion to trust in the Lord with all thy might. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways and He shall direct thy paths. Oh, what an element of faith there is in a statement like that one. Paul so often lived, of course, with the character of fear from the human family. There were those waiting to kill him. There were those in various cities waiting to take his life, but yet he pronounced by faith that he would continue to walk. He said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That kind of walk by faith challenges us to never forget the lessons that God taught Job. I wonder as the years of Job's life moved forward, do you suppose he was quick to forget these great lessons? Do you suppose he often reflected on what he had learned when God asked him questions? I wonder what you and I would learn if God were to come to us and ask questions. Randy, I have some questions for you. Answer these for me if you can. Just think about how clueless you or I would be if God like he did to Job, would to pepper us with questions one after another about the organization, the structure, the hierarchy, the nature, the physical laws that govern this place, it would be a rather humbling experience, wouldn't it? I think one of the things I noted in the last lesson, it has often seemed to me that probably Job felt about that tall after hearing some of these questions. Today, may we, in earnestness and in honesty, already understand our inferiority. That does bring us to another lesson tonight, though. A lesson that takes us to some of those creatures that were mentioned in chapters 40 and 41. There were two of them, weren't there? One of them named a behemoth, one of them named a leviathan. And almost immediately, the question that would rightfully come to any person is, I'd like to see one of those animals. Can we go to the Nashville Zoo and see one? Can we go to the Knoxville Zoo and see one? In fact, our youngsters are very much on target when they frequently ask us and talk about these creatures that they read about called dinosaurs. Creatures that they read about whose names are enthralling. And quite often, these names roll off their tongues so simply and so easily. In fact, those who are proponents of evolution have often, of course, used dinosaurs as their tools, encouraging students and youngsters to understand, here's how we explain them. And of course, those youngsters sit spellbound listening to these supposed bright men and women talk about evolution and how that 65 million years ago, supposedly, these things became extinct and man evolved, oh, about 2 million years ago. That's what they're told. And of course, you and I need to be ready to have the truth on the the subject rather than what the archaeologist and the paleontologist simply chooses to claim. And so tonight, for the rest of our lesson, what might we say about a Leviathan? And what might we say about a behemoth? If you begin to look with me at those sections of verses before us, some of the issues before them might be summarized in ways like this. First of all, dinosaurs did exist. Their fossils have been found on all seven continents. In fact, their fossils have been found from the very small to the very large, far too numerous to have been any kind of accident, far too numerous to have been explained any other way. Just as surely as they existed, you'll notice I've listed a few of the names that scientists have given to just a few of these creatures. Everything from Megalosaurus to Edmontosaurus, Stegosaurus, and all the others. In fact, I thought it might be interesting to notice what some pictures could be as we give thought to what some of these creatures might have looked like. Might we say that as you think about these pictures, artists and scientists have recreated pictures like this. This happens to be a Brachiosaurus. You can see the size of this creature, how large it would have been. Even beyond a Brachiosaurus, there's a Tyrannosaurus rex, often regarded as one of the fiercest of the dinosaurs. You could perhaps see from the nature of its mouth, the wideness of that and what it could have fit in it. Surely how easily it could have overwhelmed many an enemy. There's also an Ankylosaurus. We already are beginning to see that a number of features and characteristics of these widely differ. This one happened to have these bones or scales, if you please, on its back that would certainly have made it a very fearsome enemy. The largest of these, the Argentinosaurus. It is somewhat widely considered that this appears, at least to this point, to have been the largest of these dinosaurs, standing well over three stories tall, many of them weighing in excess of a hundred tons. This was a mighty creature. I suppose in light of matters like that, we might wonder, if it was the case that God was referring to animals like that, no wonder He said to Job. Job, could you have made that? Could you have sustained it? Could you in fact be such that it obeys your command? Can you imagine how small you and I would feel standing next to a creature like that? And yet, if this Argentinosaurus and others, in fact, like them, were these large dinosaur creatures of days gone by, it perhaps prompts us to give some additional thought to these dinosaurs. Just a few thoughts might be worthy of our consideration. One of the first things on that slide is this. Our scientist friends tell us and I mentioned it briefly in passing a moment ago, and this is the point that they wish our youngsters to to consider. Dinosaurs, in fact, ruled and roamed the earth, but they became extinct, according to the scientist, 65 million years ago. They died out for some reason. The theory as to why is somewhat varied, but nonetheless, that is the clear and definitive claim But yet, you'll notice that they are also quick to say that humans did not evolve until two million years ago. And thus, if that be true, no human beings ever saw a dinosaur. They became extinct, according to the scientists, millions and millions of years before humans ever evolved. This is the story our youngsters are told. There isn't a human that ever lived, according to them, that ever saw a dinosaur. However, you and I might need to appreciate that according to what the Bible details, that isn't the correct story to tell and it isn't the truth. Notice with me these thoughts. First of all, from a careful study as we have done in the past of the book of Genesis, we know that humans were here within five days of the creation of earth. Jesus said so in Mark 10 verses 4 through 6. Jesus on that occasion said, From the beginning God made them male and female. Humans, as we read a passage like that one, and also give thought to the book of Genesis, there were days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And although the animals came forth earlier than man, man was created on the sixth day. Thus, according to the Bible, man was here at the same time as those creatures God made on days 5, as well as those on day 6. And that would have included the dinosaurs. Those dinosaurs lived. They were powerful, majestic creatures. And yet if they were made on day five or six, as the case may be, and if man were made on day six, then man was here with them. We would thus say that human beings saw dinosaurs. At some point in the distant past, men watched them and looked at them and observed them and knew what kind of creatures they were. They weren't separated by millions of years. They were here at the same time. In fact, as we thus come to Genesis chapter 6, when that flood rolled over the planet, we have found tremendous dinosaur graveyards, if you please. Stacks and stacks of dinosaur bones that have been fossilized. Why did these dinosaurs come to certain places? And it's as though they were buried in mass... Could it be that they were trying to escape the flood waters, And could it be that they were trying to find higher ground to in fact save themselves? At this rate, we do know that although the flood may have destroyed, of course, all of them but a few, we do know that they would have been aboard the ark. Because God told Noah to take every creature on board that ark, and He did. Thus, when the flood waters ended and dinosaurs exited the ark... What happened to them? Why did they become extinct? Why are they no longer here? Those are good questions. The Bible doesn't give us the details except to say this. After the flood, things were different. Did they suddenly find a food supply that wasn't the same way that it was before the flood? Did they suddenly find that things simply were not as favorable to their condition and their state as it was before We don't know for sure. We do know this, that those dinosaurs did exist and human beings saw them. You might ask, well, if that be true, is there any evidence to that fact? Is there anything outside the Word of God that offers at least some evidence that human beings saw dinosaurs? The answer is yes. It's somewhat sad that things like this aren't found in science textbooks. But nonetheless, I would ask you to notice at the very bottom... There are several items that might be mentioned. Here's a very quick mention of three. There's the famous Doheny expedition out in the southwestern part of our own country in which on that occasion Dr. Samuel Hubbard in 1924 came across some rather amazing carvings on the walls of one of the canyons there in the southwestern part of our land. As you look at those pictures on that wall, it's easy to recognize what some of the pictures are made of. In fact, one easily notices that there are ibexes and elephants, and there are human beings and dinosaurs. One would have no question with a drawing of an elephant. One could understand what an elephant would look like, and one could even appreciate it upon seeing it. By the same token, no problem with an ibex or with a human being. But isn't it interesting that there are dinosaur pictures on that same wall with the same drawings with men and elephants and these other things. If no human being ever saw a dinosaur, how could they have drawn one to basically the right proportion in such a way that it's easy for us to imagine, in fact, what it is? A very good question, isn't it? In fact, there is the picture that is on the wall still preserved for us to see there in the southwestern part of our country. Easy to see that that does have all the appearance of a dinosaur who is reared up, perhaps, in defense of itself against a party of men, against those who are attempting to do it harm. And that's the very thing that is on the wall. Sure does appear to be a dinosaur, doesn't it? And that's only one small piece of evidence that human beings did coexist with dinosaurs. To that, we could add this. Burial stones found among the Inca India tribe. These Indians, of course, flourish along the character of the northern part of the nation of of South America and did so for several hundred years. I would invite you to notice that as you give thought to these burial stones that they buried along with their dead. Of course, as these have been discovered and found, here's just a few brief comments. As you look on these stones, again, clearly some of the pictures are easy to identify. And amazingly enough, sometimes there are just absolutely, clearly well-defined dinosaurs drawn on these. Question, how could they have known how to draw them if they had never seen one? How could they have known to draw them to roughly the right scale, the right proportion, the right character if they had never seen one? We might ask, do we have any idea of what these look like? These are just samples or pictures of these burial stones. If you can see it closely enough, there are well-defined pictures of dinosaurs on these stones. To go back to a previous slide, there was one more thing we could have noted on that earlier one. There are figurines also that have been found by the thousands. They're the so-called Acambaro figurines discovered in Mexico in 1945. As these figurines were discovered, perhaps to the chagrin of many an evolutionist, they have the almost exact shape of an expected dinosaur. They look just like one, and yet they were again found by the thousands. We might ask, what do they look like? By the same token, here is one of these figurines. As you can see, doesn't it bear a remarkable similarity in some sense to a stegosaurus? I say all that to say this, what the scientists are attempting to tell us about dinosaurs and humans being millions of years apart is simply not truth according to the Bible. It just isn't that way. The evidence is overwhelming not only from inside the Bible but outside it that dinosaurs did coexist with humanity, that humans did see them, that humans did interact with them, and as such that it leads us to come to a deeper appreciation of Job chapters 40 and 41. It is for those reasons we might come near the close of our lesson tonight by shedding a bit of additional light on these two chapters. Beginning in verse 15 of Job chapter 40, again mention is made of this creature called a behemoth. Now immediately one might question, but that does not say dinosaur. Well, there's good reason for that, and I've tried to highlight some of those thoughts here. That word dinosaur, you see wasn't coined until 1842, long long after the King James Version at least was written. And thus, when we read about something like a behemoth or a Leviathan, even if that did have reference to a dinosaur, that would not have been the word that the Greek or the Hebrew would have set forth. Notice with me some of the descriptions of this behemoth. First of all, his strength, verse 16, is in his loins. Verse 17, he moveth his tail like a cedar. Verse 18, his bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. Verse number 19, he is the chief of the ways of God. It's clear by that last statement certainly that when it makes reference to this is the chief of the ways of God. That clearly does indicate, doesn't it, that this creature was incredibly powerful. He towered in terms of his existence over the other creatures of the planet. He wasn't tiny, he wasn't weak, he wasn't small. To say that he was chief of the ways of God. In fact, that word in Hebrew seems to suggest the word greatest. This would have been the greatest land-dwelling creature that God would have made. Could that have been a dinosaur? Let's look further. It describes some of the features of this animal. Verse number 15, it ate grass. You'll also notice something else about this animal. Verse 15 does say, Job, I made it. But even beyond that, it very clearly says in verse 17 that it moved its tail like a cedar tree. At this point, when you and I begin to consider what animal can we think of whose tail would have been so notable, so strong, and so mighty that it would, in fairness, have been likened unto a cedar tree. I know that there are some Bible translations that, for the word behemoth, it'll be a footnote that suggests that maybe it was an elephant, or maybe it was a hippopotamus, or maybe it was some other kind of animal along that line or family, but None of them have a tail anywhere close to a cedar tree. A little tail of an elephant, even as large as the animal is, is minuscule and tiny and rather wimpy in comparison to what we see here. This animal, I would suggest, seems to have all the considerations. This behemoth of a dinosaur, doesn't it? But if you turn the page over to the next chapter, chapter number 41, we find another animal again mentioned and described in great detail, known as a Leviathan. Verse number 40, chapter 41, verse one Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Job is being asked, Job, can you catch a Leviathan? Job, does it in fact respond to such a thing that you might be able to capture it? Look at what reads further even past that one. Verse 7, Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? Lay thine hand upon him, remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before him? This animal, this Leviathan, is such that God there to Job says everybody's afraid of him. No one is even willing to stand in front of him or even to take the risk of stirring him up. However, much more is said about him, beginning in verse 14. "'Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales or his pride shut up together as with a close seal.'" One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go a smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth." In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at Him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the Habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. To stop reading there, we have noticed this creature, you and I probably can at least imagine the sea in its wake as the sea would have been sent to a boil. This creature was a mighty one that did live in the sea apparently. And did you notice? His scales were strong and mighty and there was nothing that could separate them. When darts or other kinds of spears or weapons were thrown his direction, he laughed at it. It was made as rotten wood, if you please. This leviathan, you see, was a very, very strong and stout and mighty sea-living creature. I would suggest to you that it seems as if here we have a description of something like a sea monster. I know that sounds like a fairy tale. Could it be, though, that there were ancient creatures living in the sea just like this? Sure there were, because God said so. And what point would it have been... For God to use this as an element in His argument if one did not really exist. God said to Job, I made that creature. Job, does He respond to you? Can you make it do what you want it to do? If you can't, you have no right to question me, and you have no right to elevate yourself to a stature of my placement. The Behemoth and the Leviathan really did exist as we give thought to what they were, the kinds of sea monsters or dinosaurs that in fact was their character, it brings us to the close of our lesson this evening in ways like this. The reference in these two chapters to these creatures has truly been an enthralling one. Not only to the humility that Job was encouraged to have, but also by the mention of these two creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan. Today, as we give thought to the fact that dinosaurs did exist, and we know that, it would seem that we have a description in the Word of God about one in chapter number 40. And it would seem in chapter 41 we have this sea-living creature that too was able to, in fact, send forth smoke and fire out of its mouth. Call it a dragon, if you like. But we do see that one existed. And by the nature of what it was able to accomplish it does remind us that there are a number of legends from extra-biblical sources that people did see things like dragons, and they did testify to them, and they did describe them. It certainly seems that they not only existed, but their character is here described for us. Tonight, what might we say in conclusion to a lesson like this one? If the God of heaven is so great that by His design and by His character, He is able to bring into being creatures like these and able to, in fact, sustain and uphold them. Isn't He able to sustain and uphold you and me on a daily basis? Isn't it true that He is going to be there to provide for us if we will trust and honor Him? In Psalm 104, the thought is made that if God takes care of the creatures of the field, will He not take care of you? Jesus used that same line of reasoning in Matthew chapter 6, didn't He? Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies of the field. The birds of the air, they don't sow, they don't toil, they don't spin, but God takes care of them. If God will take care of birds and flowers and dinosaurs, will He not take care of you and me who are far higher along the chain than them because we're made in the image and likeness of God? We are cre- individuals who will stand before God in judgment. Are you living before Him tonight in a right way? The gospel is God's power to save, Romans 1.16. If you haven't submitted to the requirements of the gospel tonight, why not tonight? If you need to make things right between you and your God... First, if you are an alien sinner, one who has never been baptized for the remission of sins, let tonight be the night. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you know that He died for you? Are you prepared to repent of your sins? If you're prepared to make that confession, then there was nothing stopping you that you could be baptized. The eunuch on one occasion did say, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He knew that being baptized is what the one thing that stood between Him and membership in the body. That also may be what's standing in your way tonight. And if we could assist you in that, why not tonight? If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but you have in fact become lazy, you've become unfaithful. You've become less than devoted and dedicated to the God who loves you. Why not come back to your first love this evening? Let us pray with you and for you. We would only ask you'd let us know in the way we could be of assistance, and that you would do that while together we stand while we sing.